Andrew Roberts is, in my view, and not just my view, one of the world's greatest living historians and biographers, among his most significant volumes, Masters and Commanders, and The Storm of War. Just four years ago, I was reading his biography of Napoleon the Great. Most recently, he has produced a thousand-page biography of Churchill. It's titled Churchill, Walking with Destiny. He's here in Washington briefly, and we're pleased he could stop in and join us for a conversation here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the we game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. Well, welcome, Andrew Roberts. So good to see you. What a pleasure. Uh, I've got so much to ask you. Look, let me start with this. I think people are curious about it. Given how much has been written about Churchill, not least by you, what inspired you to think, yeah, I think I'll spend the next few years writing a thousand-word biography of him. I think the world needs another biography, and I think I'm the man to do it. Yes, you're quite right, Cliff. Um, there actually are 1,009 biographies <laughs> of counting? Winston Churchill. Exactly. So why on earth should I impose a 1,010th on, uh, on the world? The answer is that actually there has been in the last 10 years a cornucopia of new sources that have come out. The Queen very... Um, graciously allowed me to be the first Churchill biographer to use her father's diaries. And Churchill, of course, met the king every Tuesday of the Second World War. And the king then wrote down what Churchill said. So we had new uh, hopes and fears, aperçus, gags, the lot from uh, Churchill, which has been a tremendously helpful source. We also, and, and, the, and the king was trusted implicitly by Churchill. Mm. He told him all about the ultra secrets, the nuclear secrets, where he was going to attack, who he was going to sack and so on. And uh, and they became very, very close, which they needn't have been um, at the beginning because uh, Churchill had supported the king's elder brother during the abdication crisis. So all in all, um, we have that. We also have 41 new sets of papers at uh, Churchill College Archives in the last 10 years. We've got the Russian ambassador's diaries for the first time, uh, Ivan Maisky. We've got the verbatim accounts of the war cabinet, and they've all come out in the last 10 years. Uh, an unfair question <laughs> is to ask you what you learned about him that you really didn't understand previously. Oh, no, it's not an unfair question at all. It's a very good question. And the answer is, um, in he told the king... Um, that he was much more irritated, angry, frustrated about the United States not getting involved in the Second World War more and earlier, uh, which is something he couldn't say to anyone else. He couldn't say it to the cabinet. He couldn't say it, of course, to Parliament or the people. But he was in a state of total frustration that in this war that he saw, correctly in my view, as a war for civilization and democracy, um, the uh, the great um, greatest democracy in the world, um, was standing back and didn't go to war against uh, Adolf Hitler until Hitler declared war on them. So, so there was this this grinding sense of um, of frustration. Whereas, of course, in public, he uh, had a very um, positive mm -hmm. and uh, and friendly outlook towards the United States. And, and, and of course, I, I think it's fair to say that getting the the United States involved, getting Roosevelt to commit to this conflict, 
this was a great challenge and a, and a great achievement because there were, as there are now, uh, on the right and the left, I would argue, those in the United States who say these foreign wars really do not, need not concern us. That's right. And you had Charles Lindbergh and the isolationist movement, um, and they were very tough. And um, they, of course, had an awful lot of people in the Congress and the press and, uh, and, and in the country at large. So um, I don't want to ever underestimate um, President Roosevelt's uh, um, record in trying to bring America closer and closer into the conflict. He did, certainly in the uh, patrolling in the, in the Western Atlantic. But um, actually, it did ultimately, of course, come down to the Germans declaring war four days after Pearl Harbor. Great mistake on the part of the Germans, which I've never quite understood. It's a fascinating, it's a fascinating mistake that Hitler made. Yes, he, of course, uh, like all the other senior Nazis, had never visited America. He didn't understand America. He thought that America was run, um, as he said, by the Jews and the blacks, which obviously um, he hadn't taken a close look at the Roosevelt administration. Mm. Um, and... Um, <laughs> And that therefore that they would be bad fighters, mm. whereas in fact when you when you see all the statistics, they make very good fighters. Mm -hmm. So he was a he was a um, uh, he put his ideology above his uh, the best interests of the Reich. Now, this is not the same question I just asked you. The public has an image of Churchill based on a thousand and nine biographies and based on films, not least uh, Gary Oldman's portrayal of Churchill in The Desperate Hours. Um, if I have the title the right. Dark, the Darkest Hours. The Darkest Hours, thank you. So what does the public misunderstand about who Churchill was? Well, I like those. I like that movie very much. Uh, I thought that Gary Oldman's um, uh, prosthetics look amazing, <laughs> that way in which he had that smile, uh, the, the sort of glint in his eye was a delight. Um, but um, the problem with it was, uh, and, and as I say, I really like the film, the problem with it was that it argued that Churchill didn't just decide himself that Britain was going to fight on, but in fact he had to go on to, into the underground, into the subway, and take a sort of um, focus group on the, <laughs> on, uh, on the subway. And then he had to be told by the king in his bedroom at midnight, something that simply did not happen at the number 10 Downing Street. Um, in fact, that both of those things tend to detract from the thing that people should know about Winston Churchill, which is that it was pure leadership. It was him outmaneuvering his foreign secretary, Lord Halifax, um, appealing to the wider cabinet, not taking in uh, MPs or, or what uh, anyone else really was saying, certainly not the Foreign Office, mm -hmm. and going ahead with this absolutely key decision, which many people can see as the key decision of the 20th century, which was to continue to fight on in 1940. And, and I'm, I'm going to come back to that. I want to, uh, before we do, I just want to build up with you a little bit about his early life and who he was, which some people know and some don't. I mean, for he came from an elite background, obviously. Um, that would be called privilege nowadays. Sure would, yes. He was um, the grandson of a duke and he was born in a palace, the grandest palace in Britain. The royals are envious of Blenheim Palace. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's also fair to say that in addition to the privilege, he had a strong sense of obligation and responsibility, not to mention a strong sense of destiny, which is in the subtitle of, of your book. 
Yes, and it's not just in it because it sounds good. It's in it because it came from the speech that he gave, sorry, the last volume of his war memoirs, in which he said that I felt as if I were walking with destiny and that all my past life has been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. What I've tried to do in this book is to unpack that and actually to see the extent that he did believe he was walking with destiny. And it is extraordinary, his sense of self-belief. At the age of 16, he told his best friend at school uh, that he was going to, that there would be great troubles, great upheavals, great struggles, and that he was going to be called upon to save London, save the country and save the empire. And of course, half and a half a century later, that's exactly what happened. In terms of those preparations, uh, how important is it that he he began and, and made the decision to begin um, his career um, as a soldier and as a journalist, by the way. <laughs> yes, not just as it, well, as the best paid war correspondent is what he became very soon. I think it's tremendously important for several reasons. The first, of course, is that it meant that he saw war close up. Yeah. It was never true that Churchill was a warmonger. He knew what it was like. He'd lost so many friends in the five wars that he'd fought before the Second World War. He was um, instead someone who hated the concept of war, but realized that if you had to fight it, you had to win it. Mm. Um, the second thing was it really helped with his um, his journalism being so immediate, um, really helped with his speechifying. Mm. It meant that his speeches were also incredibly um, immediate and uh, he liked to use short words and Anglo-Saxon words and the rest. Um, and lastly, I think the way in which um, Churchill was able to show incredible bravery on so many occasions um, the charge of the 21st Lancers at the Battle of Omdurman, for example, the great uh, last great cavalry charge of the British Empire, his unit took 25% casualties. And then the year later, his train was ambushed and they took 34% casualties and he showed great bravery on both occasions. Then he escaped from a prisoner of war camp uh, a couple of months later and trekked through 300 miles of enemy territory. You know, this was a guy who had enormous physical courage mm. as well as moral courage, of course. I want to come back to those wars also, but one of the things I do, I want to get in just is his family life it was not an easy family life he had a father who was aloof he had an american his mother was american he had there was that wonderful quote you have that he he loved her but from afar he, he um she shone for me like the evening star brilliant but at a distance at a distance yeah. yeah so his parents were, were mm. these were these were these were parents who were not a constant source of of love, affection, and support. Exact, Can I say that? The exact opposite. Yes, I think you're 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 being kind to them. I I, I wanted to talk a, a little bit about some of the wars he fought, not least in in the Sudan, because today we're fighting a, a war in this world. I would argue against Islamism, jihadism, radical Islam. Call it what you will. He fought in a similar war as well, the River War that he wrote two volumes on. Was that sort of war? It was against a uh, a Mahdi. It was against uh, what we call today jihadists. No? Yes, yeah, the Khalifa, who was yeah. the Mahdi's um, uh, successor, was a uh, was was just as much as the Mahdi a uh, a sort of. It's not impossible to equate him with sort of Osama bin Laden kind mm -hmm. of figure. Mm -hmm. um, uh, charismatic, um, highly intelligent, extremely evil and dangerous. And so when uh, Churchill went out to, uh, uh, to the Sudan, he saw what he'd always earlier seen in the Malakand field force and in his fighting on the northwest frontier of India, which was also, of course, against Pathan um, tribesmen. 
and indeed in the Swat Valley. I mean, he's, mm. he's, he is, he was precisely geographically where the kind of fighting um, that uh, our countries have been um, involved in over the last 15 years. Um, and he came away with a very powerful sense of the fanaticism of uh, Islamic fundamentalism. And I think that that was one of the, one of the uh, aspects that allowed him to spot the Nazis as early as, mm. um, as he did, because he saw in Hitler and the Nazis the same kind of fanaticism, which had, you know, people like uh, the 1930s uh, premiers, like um, Ramsay MacDonald and Neville Chamberlain and Stanley Baldwin, they'd never come up against fanaticism in their whole lives, anything like like that, whereas Churchill had seen it before and he spotted it again. Right. So, so when the, yeah, so when you have a Neville Chamberlain speaking with a, a Hitler, he projects his own values on Hitler. You think surely this guy doesn't want a war with us? He doesn't want a, such devastation. He'd rather peace and prosperity. He'd rather amnesty because he hadn't seen that kind of that kind of fanaticism. As you precisely. Precisely. It. Churchill talks about the, the the ability of the West to defeat that kind of fanaticism based on science, which meant really military technology. Uh, there was no chance that that in Afghanistan, the Pathans, or in Sudan, you the kinds of weaponry that Britain had, uh, their enemies were going to have, so they could win. Of course, nowadays it's much easier. Uh, to get the plans to build an atomic weapon or mm. to build uh, missiles, uh, science is no is, science is produced in the West, but it's easily uh, appropriated by our enemies. This is a this is a serious danger that, uh, of the, of the current era, isn't it? It certainly is, and of course, um, Churchill went to very great lengths to ensure that our advantages in the scientific field didn't fall into the hands of the enemy. Um, and um, of course, our breaking of the German codes, the ultra code, which gave us mm. the all the Enigma uh, decrypts, was the closest kept secret of the Second World War, and it didn't come out until 1972. Um, and um, Churchill was also a great supporter, of course, of espionage of other countries. He he loved um, the spying um, on uh, on enemies or potential enemies as much as possible. So yes, he was a great player of the uh, of the of the spy game, um, but he always understood that um, it wasn't really a game because ultimately, if you lost, you would lose everything. He was um, a, a polymath with, with few equals, and perhaps no equals in the entire century when you think about it. He wrote what, 37 books? 37 books. 37 yeah. books. He was a journalist. He, was, he, was a, he wrote his own speeches up until the very end, if I recall. He painted, and he painted really well. I think so, yeah. Um, and, he, and, and he laid bricks for relaxation. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, what he amazes bought, he bought he he built some of the buildings at uh, at Chartwell, his uh, lovely manor house in Kent. I mean, really, one wonders how anyone would have time for. I suppose he didn't waste time on Twitter. That helps. But <laughs> oh, by the way, no, no, no. Well, Cliff, I think he'd have been absolutely brilliant on Twitter. <laughs> I think a lot of his witticisms and uh, and and jokes and gags uh, and his putting down of hecklers could easily be done in 280 characters or less. <laughs> there was a marvellous moment when his private secretary came to him and said that uh, their cook had been made pregnant as the result of a nocturnal assignation with a man in the street in Verona. And Winston Churchill immediately replied, obviously not one of the two gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> he was also a strategist. Nowadays, everybody likes to think of himself or herself as a strategist. You can't turn on the cable TV without seeing a GOP strategist, Democratic strategist. 
my impression is that there are very few people who really think strategically. People can think tactically, but not strategically in, in, in the sense of uh, here's how this all plays out, 10 moves to, on the chessboard. That's right, yes. In both the First World War and the Second World War, um, he uh, thought of himself as a strategist. He was right in in a sense in the First World War and completely right in the Second. Um, with regard, he'd of course been to uh, Sandhurst, so he'd studied strategy and he'd read enormous amounts of, um, of military history and, uh, and military biography. And so he... Um, uh, and and also there was some there was a great sort of pushiness to uh, Winston Churchill, whereby if um, he was at a mess dinner, he would go up to the most important person in the in the room, you know, the most senior general, and start talk, talking strategy with him. Mm. When he was a lieutenant, you know, it was <laughs> totally unknown in those days. But if your father had been Chancellor of the Exchequer and you were the grandson of the Duke, you know, you you could get away with that kind of thing. But of course, the great um, disaster struck in 1915 when his old um, genius in many ways, strategic move to send the Royal Navy through the Dardanelles Straits, the Narrows, and try to knock Turkey out of the mm -hmm. Central Powers, uh, came to a disastrous and devastating um, series of, uh, of attacks, just as bad as anything that we'd seen on the Western Front, and led to the killing or wounding of 160,000 Allied troops. Mm. Yeah, Gallipoli was a huge mistake, huge. which he, I'm sure, felt terrible. But I'm sure he also learned from it. That's not, I mean, well, let's this be honest. Is, yes, this it. is the key thing. He did. He, and, and what the key thing he learned was never to overrule the chiefs of staff. Mm. So in the whole of the mm. Second World War, he did not once overrule huh. um, Alan Brooke and, uh, and the other two chiefs of staff. Um, they had rows, titanic rows, and, and uh, Brooke would sit there breaking pencils in half, saying, no, I disagree with you, Prime Minister. But if, they, if the chiefs were against it, they did not allow it to go through. And how important that they had those debates, those fights, those arguments, and that he allowed his generals to win. That's exactly what Hitler did not do. Him, exactly. Right? No, well, this is the thing. It's the difference between the democratic way of, of making war um, and the totalitarian way. Um, in, uh, in the Wolfschanze, 1,600 miles behind the German lines, the Fuhrer would listen to these generals, sometimes listen for up to an hour to, uh, to generals, including men who had far better grasp of strategy than him, like Manstein or Guderian or Rommel. Um, and then he would go back and do precisely what he'd originally said he was going to do at the beginning of the meeting. Whereas with Churchill and the chiefs of staff, and also, of course, once the Americans were in the war, the American chiefs of staff mm -hmm. and FDR, you had a creative tension that, although there's no doubt it was always tense, um, did produce a strategy that was far, far better. Mm, exactly. I wanna, he loved the British Empire. And today we say the, the word empire with tremendous disdain. Um, I don't. You well, that's good. So, talk about what he saw, what you see, that perhaps he didn't. Why empire? Why why empire? Imperialism? Why they sh maybe should not be dirty words as they are in so much of the, the West. Um, Winston Churchill fell in love with the empire when he went out to India in 1896 as a subaltern uh, in the Fourth Hussars, and he looked around and he saw a country, a, a vast subcontinent, that. Um, hadn't seen anything but internal peace since the Indian mutiny in the, the 1850s and was not to, of course, until the, uh, until the 
uh, transfer of power in India. He saw a country that had, under the British, increased its land under cultivation by eight times, that had increased the uh, life expectancy of uh, Indians by um, by 100%, they doubled it, um, who had created railways and universities and industries that hadn't existed before, that had protected the Indians from far more rapacious and unpleasant regimes such as the French Empire, the Spanish, uh, Italian or Russian empires, mm. um, Portuguese, um, and also who had given the English language to the um, uh, to the Indians, which made, brought them into the rest of um, the world, which gave them the same um, weights and measures uh, right the way across the subcontinent mm. and had unified the subcontinent politically uh, for the first time in its history. So he didn't think of it as something like the Marxist professors of the 1960s as some exploitative institution that did nothing for the Indians. It did an enormous amount. Not only, also, of course, now I'm on to my rant here about this, it... Uh, it um, it abolished the uh, horrific practice of throwing widows onto the funeral pyres of their dead husbands, sati, it did, and, and crushed tuggy as well, the ritualized murder of, um, of travelers. The British Empire, he thought, um, had done an awful lot of good for not just India, but for most of the rest of the um, uh, colonies that we had um, colonized. But of course, if we're serious multiculturalists, we can't judge the throwing of widows onto the funeral pyres of their husbands, can we? No, and that's why Churchill was not a serious <laughs> or entertained any kind of multiculturalist any more than I am. But so in UK, certainly there's must remain controversy over uh, over Churchill. My guess is that Jeremy Corbyn of uh, the Labour Party doesn't have his portrait up in his office. <laughs> no, actually, um, he's under attack a lot from the from the ultra left at the moment. Um, the people around Jeremy Corbyn all uh, universally hate Churchill. Um, his uh, statue was vandalised in a left wing march a few years back. Um, only last year, a cafe um, was uh, was smashed up by people just because it had a pro um, Churchill. It was called the Churchill Cafe. Um, and mm. uh, people who go to universities and try to say anything in favour of Churchill uh, and the empire can be uh, shouted down. So, yes, he is under attack. But um, I'm hoping that maybe with this book, being able to educate people about the truth rather than the appalling avalanche of rubbish and lies that you get on the Internet about him, um, this might uh, slow down a bit. In the 1930s was perhaps the the hardest period of his life. He, they were called the wilderness years. He, again, as we discussed, saw the th rising threat from Hitler, wanted Britain and the Europeans to do something about it. They didn't want to. He was called a warmonger at that, at that point because he was, he was saying we should rearm. We have to be prepared. This is going to happen. Um, but he, but he, but he stayed strong through those 10 years, even though most, I guess most people thought he was wrong. And this is another reason that I subtitled the book um, uh, Walking with Destiny, because although everybody by 1937, when uh, Neville Chamberlain came to power uh, and didn't appoint him to the cabinet, um, Everybody thought that um, Churchill's career was over and he was a has-been. Yeah. And so you have this, um, even, I'm afraid to say, uh, his beloved wife, Clementine, really thought that um, he was now never going to be prime minister. Only one person still thought that he was going to be prime minister. But that was the key person. Winston <laughs> Churchill himself did. And so he stuck to his guns. And he, even though they tried to deselect him from his uh, conservative seat, 
he uh, carried on saying exactly the same things and was, of course, um, ultimately on the 15th of March 1939 when Hitler invaded um, the rump of Czechoslovakia and entered Prague, um, proved right. Mm. And of course, because the, the UK did not prepare for this war, because, it, it, because by, by the time it was more universally recognized how threatening Hitler was, he had already taken... France. He had already taken Czechoslovakia. He had already invaded Poland. There were those saying, and 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 you can see the argument. Maybe we, maybe he was right, but it's too late now. The best thing we can do is negotiate some kind of separate peace and let the Germans do what they want to do. And on the continent, we're not part of the continent. That's right. Yes, it would be. Um the uh, policy of Lord Halifax, the Foreign Secretary, Rab Butler, and probably quite a few other members of the Chamberlainite wing of the Conservative Party, which was in a huge majority, of course, in the national government at that time, to say, look, um, we've got the troops back from um, from Dunkirk, but with no ammunition, no um, tanks or, or heavy um, artillery. Um, how on earth are we going to prosecute this war? Where are we going to attack? When is this ever going to um, uh, to stop? France has been knocked out. There's no prospect of us being able to return to the continent. The best thing to do would be via Mussolini to do a deal with Hitler whereby he kept Europe and we kept the empire. And there were these siren voices who were saying that. And despite being a great imperialist, of course, um, Churchill said, absolutely not. Mm. Mm. And if you think what would have happened if um, Hitler, instead of having to keep 30 to 50 percent of the Luftwaffe in the West protecting against the um, the RAF bombing offensive, mm. had been able to use it at Stalingrad or Leningrad or Moscow. I mean, he subjected Stalingrad to he captured Stalingrad. He subjected Leningrad to a thousand day grueling siege. And he got to the underground stations, the subway stations of Moscow. You know, had he had the whole of his Luftwaffe, he could have got further than that and pushed the Russians beyond the Urals, by which time, he, after a year or two of that, um, he'd have come for us. Eventually, of course, we discussed the United States decide, did become, become uh, decide to, to, to join with, 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 with Britain in this war. Um, Churchill's relations and feelings about America were more complex than most people probably recognize, and, and not least in regard to FDR, who I think he admired. But talk a little bit about that so we get that right. Yes. Um, Churchill, although in the September 1943 Harvard speech, which is the high watermark, really, of Churchill's pro-Americanism, he was um, advocating a common citizenship. Actually, earlier in his career, he had... Um, been pretty anti-American in the not publicly though only ever privately in the 1920s when America was um, refusing to uh, go along with debt reduction after the reparations of the um, from the Germans, um, which he thought was essential in order to stop uh, having a having a crash in the late 1920s, and also because the Americans insisted on having a vast fleet uh, in the Atlantic, which um, Churchill couldn't see the point of because the Royal Navy was already mm. there. Churchill privately started making pretty anti-American statements, and uh, and um, it wasn't until he actually came here in 1931 and 32, um, where he was very nearly killed, by the way, in a car crash on a uh, car accident on mm -hmm. uh, Fifth Avenue in New York. Still a dangerous place. <laughs> <laughs> um, he had um, he changed his mind at mm. this point. And the reason he changed his mind is that he went on a, a, a huge sort of uh, 
book tour, mm -hmm. basically. T took him thousands of miles, many cities, dozens of states. He went, he traveled far more than any other English uh, politician in America. 28 states he mm. visited. And, um, and his contact with ordinary Americans led him to, uh, to like them. And trust them, and realise that actually, in the great struggle against Hitler, um, it um, was going to be vital to have them on his side. Franklin Roosevelt, it seems to me, saw Stalin somewhat through rose-colored glasses. Uh, had a, he saw, and 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 perhaps Churchill did not so much. Or am I wrong? On that? I don't think that's right. Actually, I think that um, that. To an extent, they both did. Mm. Um, Churchill came back from the Yalta Agreement of um, February 1945, telling his um, telling his cabinet that he believed that we could trust Stalin on issues such as the future integrity and independence of Poland. Uh, whereas it was clear that um, Stalin had spent the entire Yalta conference just lying to both um, FDR and uh, Churchill about his plans for taking over Eastern Europe. And um, and so I'm afraid Churchill was just as much um, taken in. But in a way, it wasn't even a case of naivety because great statesmen of that of that uh, ilk aren't genuinely naive. They mm. just see alternatives and what would um, extrapolate from those alternatives. And um, when you think uh, of what the alternative would be, it's very difficult to know what you could do about Poland, which had um, millions of Red Army soldiers stationed there, and which was not about to be given up by them. So um, it's uh, it's terribly difficult. It's all, it's appalling. I mean, the whole story of uh, the end of the Second World War mm. is, of course, appalling with regard to Poland and Eastern Europe. But it's very difficult to see a genuine different outcome. Right. After World War II, was he slow to recognize that despite the Allied victory, the British Empire was going to erode? Yes, yes, he was. He he did see some things really wonderfully well. He was the first person really to see that Stalinist um, expansionism was something to worry about, that, that if they were going to force a Cold War on us. His great Iron Curtain speech in Fulton, Missouri in March 1946 was in many ways just as brave and just as foresightful um, as anything he'd ever said about Hitler in the 1930s. Um, but he wasn't able to see the um, the empire clearly. Um, and the reason actually he felt at the end of his life that he was a failure in life was because he hadn't been able to protect the empire. What do you think that Churchill might have thought about Brexit? I, I, I think he might well, well have supported it. I think he was dubious about the UK having been the list of this great empire, merely being uh, a part of Europe, uh, of an appendage of a, of, a, of a larger Europe. Am I wrong on that? I, I've been asked this many, many times. The drawback is that, as Mary Soames, Churchill's daughter, used to um, tell me, um, don't ever um, assume you know what Winston would have done. Because, yeah. of course, he died a half a century before Brexit. He had been the um, leading proponent of the European movement, um, Given great speeches at The Hague and um, and Zurich and so on, Strasbourg, um, speaking about how important it was that Teuton should never fight Gaul. Mm. Um, however, mm. when he became Prime Minister in April 1951 and through to October 1955 when he left the Premiership, he did nothing in the way of bringing Britain closer towards the um, the common market, which was founded only in 1957. He didn't bring us into the Iron and Steel Confederation. 
he didn't bring us into the European army. So it was, um, it's a question really of whether or not you follow his words or his, uh, or his actions. And of course, there's a huge difference between Britain being part of a common market and be, Britain being part of a European Union, where to a great extent, there are bureaucrats in Brussels who are making very important rules for every member of the, of the union. And what Churchill kept talking about instead was the United States, um, the Commonwealth, the conne connections that we have with other countries all mm. around the rest of the world, rather than just uh, uh, just um, European ones. Are, are there other aspects to his life, to his beliefs, to his writings that you think are particularly relevant to the current era? Certainly, he knew that appeasement is a bad policy when it comes to those who are the declared and avowed enemies of, of Britain and the United States and of other free societies. Yes, he was the he was the, the um, clarion call of the 1930s against uh, against Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. Um, he could have been tougher earlier on both Mussolini and Franco. Mm. Uh, in fact, mm. the um, uh, he 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 didn't really seem to. Um, to get into his stride until Hitler was the um, central um, figure on the continent. But um, the idiom he used and the words he used and the eloquence he employed uh, were such that they go beyond the troubles of the 1930s and the, and the horrors of that decade and the 1940s. Um, straight to our present day. There are many, many speeches. There's one he gave on September the 11th, interestingly, 1940, mm. um, about how uh, democracies mustn't bow to to dictatorships, which are true today, uh, as true today as they were on the day he said them. This also strikes me as relevant. He observed that the Cold War was not a violent jerk, but a prolonged pull. It seems to me, isn't that an apt description of the war in which we are engaged today, a war that here at FDD we call the long war. The long war, yes, absolutely, it is. It's uh, it's it's precisely that. He he was the first to see it. He he put the Cold War into its uh, his correct historical um, context, the part of the continuum of these these four great totalitarian struggles against uh, democracy and freedom. The first being the Kaisers in 1918, then Adolf Hitler's then the Cold War itself, and we're fighting our one today against Islamic fundamentalist terrorism. There's much more in this book that anybody listening to this broadcast really needs to, really needs to read. Uh, you'll find it thoughtful, provoking, uh, you'll find it stimulating, you'll find it edifying. But for now, thank you very much, Andrew Roberts. It's been such a pleasure to have this conversation with thank you. Thank you very much, Cliff. I've really enjoyed it. And thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Foreign Policy. As always, find and subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. If you like this week's episode and have feedback for us, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd appreciate your thoughts and your criticisms, too. We hope you'll join us again in the future, but until then, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy. Foreign Policy.